Hey there, this is Damien Blinkensop with The Quantified Body. Today we're looking at ensuring micronutrient status. So ensuring your body has the building blocks it needs to do what it needs to do. It's an important lever to increasing your health span and current functionality and performance. We'll discuss some of the reasons why in this episode. Previously, we discussed micronutrient status with a focus on magnesium in episode 17 with Carol Lynn Dean. Today, we're looking at fat-soluble micronutrients, including vitamin A, D, and K. I personally look at micronutrient status as a foundational piece to get covered first. It's easier to do than most things and has wide-ranging impacts, so it's a good place to start. Something else I'd like to highlight for you to pay attention to in today's episode is looking at the body as a set of dynamic systems. We typically think we just have to raise one value into an optimum range with blood work or labs or so on. However, as you'll learn today, even with respect to basic vitamins, it's often not that simple. It can be personally nuanced, right? Different for each person. And there are interplays between different markers to consider. Thus, the benefits of looking at several markers at one time, which we've discussed before, such as a panel, for instance, to get a realistic picture by looking at several markers, which point out uh, one aspect of functionality in your body. Today's guest is Chris Masterjohn. He's a PhD in nutritional sciences and currently assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College, part of the City University of New York. In the last five years, Chris has been responsible for originating influential ideas and papers on the fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K, the importance of their role in the body, and addressing that status, the status of these micronutrients, to promote health. If you follow the Paleo Ancestral Health or Western A. Price Foundation communities, it would be difficult to not have already come across some of his work. Chris now has both a podcast and a blog of his own named The Daily Lipid, where he covers his latest ideas and research on optimum nutrition. His podcast is both technically detailed and has a lot of practical takeaways, so I highly recommend you check that out also. As usual, go to thequantifiedbody.net to get the show notes for this episode, which includes the links to everything mentioned in the show. An important goal of this show is to give you actionable takeaways so that you can use the information. Our show notes are structured to help you with this by giving you the exact details on the self-experiment the guest recommends, the tools and tactics, and biomarkers discussed throughout the show. So we've really put a lot of effort into making the show notes a great support for the episode. Definitely worth checking out if you haven't done that before. And you can get the show notes in a newsletter also whenever a show comes out, if you prefer. Simply go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter pop your email in there, and you'll get the show notes in your email with each episode. Now, please enjoy this interview with Chris Masterjohn on everything fat-soluble micronutrients. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Chris, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, It's great to be here, Damien. Thank you for having me. So, 
I just wanted to get a little bit of an intro from you so that I guess uh, the audience that hasn't come across you already, although I expect most of them have, can get a bit of an idea where you've came from and how you got into what you do. Sure. So I have a PhD in nutritional sciences, and I'm currently assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York. And I had always been interested in nutrition, at least since my teenage years, but I sort of got set along my current path when I went vegan for a while and didn't have very good health outcomes on and actually really improved my health a lot when I learned about Weston Price, who studied at an opportune time in the 1930s, documented the nutritional transition that occurred in many different cultures across the globe from traditional diets to diets of modern refined foods and documented the physical degeneration that took place there. And what struck me from that that really provided a lot of utility to me at the time was that in traditional diets that were associated with great health, there was a really strong emphasis on nutrient-dense animal foods that supplied fat-soluble vitamins. So in learning that and kind of implementing principles that really helped turn my health around, I became very interested in the fat-soluble vitamins, and that's why uh, studying vitamins A, D, and K, uh, which is one of my passions and my current focus of research, has uh, been something that I've been so interested in. So over the course of even leading up into grad school, I had done a lot of work trying to understand the interactions between the fat-soluble vitamins, and I, uh, I published a, a hypothesis paper about that. When I was in grad school, I actually studied energy metabolism and glycation and antioxidant defense. Uh, but then in my postdoc at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, and now at Brooklyn College, I'm moving back into studying the fat-soluble vitamins. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. I'm curious. So what kind of health issues did you have and you found that resolved through this journey? Well, uh, most of what I experienced was kind of an aggravation of existing predispositions. So as an example, I, as a child, I had been fairly predisposed to tooth decay. When I was vegan, this became very exaggerated. So in, in one single trip to the dentist, I found out that I needed over, or I had over a dozen cavities and that I needed two root canals. And I had had digestive problems since I was a baby, but when I was vegan, they became much worse to the point where they were really interfering with my day-to-day -day function. I had been predisposed towards anxiety probably at least since my early to mid-teens, but the anxiety and panic disorder really became strong and really started interfering with my day-to-day -day function when I was a vegan. And Weston Price's work actually focused centrally on tooth decay. And so when I was reading his magnum opus, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, I was most interested in how can I fix my tooth decay. And what really surprised me was that my mental health was just completely revolutionized without me even trying to fix it once I started incorporating nutrient-dense animal foods into my diet. Very interesting. Very interesting. I had a similar experience. I did vegan for not as long as you probably. I think I did about four months. But it was around that time also I started getting tooth issues, started having all these fillings and so on. So it's interesting. Maybe that happens to a lot of people. And of course, today I'm doing much better. I don't really need to go to the dentist that much these days. 
So that's cool. So wanted to jump into this whole area of fat soluble micronutrients, which you've done a hell of a lot of work in and your work is very well known for this area. Would you say, first of all, just to kind of isolate what we're talking about, when you say fat soluble micronutrients, what are you talking about? Is it the A, D and K or is it a bit broader? How would you categorize that? So the fat soluble vitamins are, there are four of them. They're A, D, E and K. And in my research, I have also done a lot of research into the antioxidant defense system, and I view vitamin E as a functional part of that system. So when I was in graduate school, uh, my work was very closely related to vitamin E, but I view vitamins A, D, and K as being involved in a, a functional network together where there are really a whole sort of set of specific physiological functions that those three vitamins cooperate together in in a way that vitamin E is not really as closely aligned with that system. So most of the work when I refer to the fat soluble vitamins, I, technically that includes vitamin E, but more often than not, I'm referring to AD and K. Right, right. I find it really interesting because I noticed this when I was doing preparation for this, that you talk about it as a system because a lot of people think of vitamins as separate things, but it seems that the way you look at it, it is a system. You're looking at a whole systemic level and when you're looking at optimizing it or improving it, you have to really look at it from that broad perspective. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I think most scientists who actively think about this sort of thing would agree that during the course of the 20th century, we did a really good job breaking things down into fragments. And we did not do a very good job putting them back together again. And so the task that lies before us in the 21st century is to take all of this fragmentation and all of this very granular knowledge that we've obtained about specific things and then figure out how they fit together in systems. And I think that is the frontier of science right now. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. And if you were to describe this as a system, is there anything else you'd add in uh, beyond what you've already said about it, which gives people the overview of that whole system? Not to get obviously in too much detail, but to kind of get, get the highlights. Is there anything to add? Yeah, I mean, sure, absolutely. So I think biological complexity is kind of like an onion. You peel away one layer, and then as soon as you look beyond that layer, you come across another layer, and you come across another layer, and you come across another layer. So uh, to just to take an illustrative example of how some of these things would fit together into a system, let's just take one specific protein. So matrix glaw protein, or MGP, is a vitamin K-dependent protein that's responsible for putting calcium into our bones and teeth where it primarily belongs and preventing it from going into the places that it doesn't belong, like the soft tissues, particularly the blood vessels or the kidneys, for example, where we contribute to vascular disease or kidney stones. Now, you take this one protein and you we call it a vitamin K-dependent protein because vitamin K is necessary to activate it and give it that ability to control calcium. But how do we get it in the first place? Well, vitamins A and D are responsible for telling the cell to make that protein. But vitamins A and D can't do that on their own because to strip away to the next layer, when vitamins A and D tell the cell to do something, they do it because they are metabolized into signaling compounds that then bind to a receptor that then binds to DNA and controls the degree to which genes are expressed. And when they bind to their receptor, the only way the receptor can bind to the DNA is because there are interlocking finger structures that fit together 
kind of like if you were to um, clasp your own fingers together in your hand and you imagine that one set of fingers from the left hand is the receptor and the other set of fingers from the right hand is the DNA, they fit together basically just like that. But what's responsible for the finger shapes is the coordination by zinc. So if you don't have the zinc there, you can have vitamin A there, you can have vitamin D there, and they can bind to the receptor, but the receptor won't bind to the DNA and the function won't be carried out. So zinc is clearly important there. Then you could take magnesium. Magnesium, I almost think that trying to get granular about all the specific things that magnesium does would cause you to underestimate its roles. Because if you just take two of the roles that magnesium plays and ignore all of the other specific enzymes it activates, magnesium is necessary to activate the enzymes that are involved in translating genes into proteins. So imagine that vitamins A and D, with the help of zinc, are binding to the DNA and telling the DNA to be expressed. If magnesium isn't there, that compromises the ability to synthesize those specific proteins as well as every other protein in the body. Magnesium also plays other roles in regulating the distribution of calcium that would ultimately allow MGP to, to fulfill the function we were talking about before. To take another example, carbon dioxide is necessary for the process because when vitamin K activates MGP, for example, what it, it does that by taking carbon dioxide and adding it to the protein and that addition of carbon dioxide is actually what allows that protein to start controlling the distribution of calcium. So carbon dioxide is produced primarily during energy metabolism, and that means that supplying that carbon dioxide is dependent on your metabolic rate, uh, but also the macronutrient mix in the diet plays a role as well. For example, carbohydrates produce 50% more carbon dioxide than fats do. So getting adequate carbohydrate is important. Now, I just peeled the layer back to, to the third layer, I'm sure we could keep going. And ultimately, if you just keep peeling it back and peeling it back, what you find is that everything is interdependent with everything. Right. But what I have tried to do in, in my writing is we can't make any use of the information if we don't simplify it and try to develop a, a working paradigm to talk about it and to understand it. And so I think that it's, it's necessary to have that top layer of the onion where we focus in on some of the key points, or, or otherwise it, it, it would just be information overload and we wouldn't really be able to do anything with it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping, like personally, machine learning and things like that will eventually be able to get around that and actually understand all of these complex systems. But it's kind of obvious that it's going to be beyond human human level understanding just because there are so many moving parts and it's a dynamic system. You change one thing and something else is going to get it distorted. So is it safe to say that anything that would be deficient so it could be one of the vitamins or some of those associated micronutrient uh, minerals you mentioned, like magnesium or zinc, could distort the system and therefore get an output that you're not looking for. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to really answer questions about what's going on in many cases, because you can say, well, I'm prone to tooth decay or I'm prone to my children tend to have a narrow palate. And you can say, well, okay, vitamin K-dependent proteins should be necessary to broaden the palate and to supply mineralization to the teeth. And so you focus on vitamin K, but you may not realize that 
what's ultimately missing is something upstream that's allowing vitamin K to fulfill its function and just throwing vitamin K at the system isn't going to do anything. So it's really important that we continually improve our understanding about how to figure out what the weakest link in the chain is because we're always going to get the biggest benefit from fixing what's missing. If we take something that's 80 to 90% good and, and we make that 95%, then that's going to be relatively little benefit. But spending the time to figure out what might be really missing at 20%, moving that up to 80% could provide huge effects. Yeah. So would you say the things you've looked at, this system of vitamin D, K, and A is basically a high, a high lever, a high impact lever for changing health scenarios because you feel like it, a deficiency of any of these can affect a lot of things, a lot of our systems in our body? Yeah, I do. And if you look at some of the most common diseases that we would be concerned about, you can see, uh, particularly with heart disease, the fat-soluble vitamins likely play a very important role in protecting arteries from calcification. And calcification of arterial plaque is one of the driving forces in the rupture of that plaque that eventually leads to a heart attack or an ischemic stroke. That's a major concern. We see a correlation between heart disease and kidney disease and osteoporosis. All of that can kind of be grouped under this general malfunction of putting calcium where it's supposed to be. So if calcium is going into the kidneys and into the blood vessels and it's not going into the bones, the wrong way to approach that is to send the person to the bone doctor to look at the bones, send the person to the heart doctor to look at the heart, and send the person to the kidney doctor to look at the kidney. That may be necessary to manage the disease process, but what we want to be doing is figuring out what are the commonalities here and what is the central defect in the system that's contributing to all of these different things. And that can very easily be explained by a malfunction of the fat-soluble vitamin-dependent system of putting calcium where it does belong and keeping it out of where it doesn't belong. If you take that out of the area of the elderly and you put it into the area of children, then you will see similar things where attaining proper growth and not just getting tall, but also having a broad dental palate that fits all of your teeth and so on and so forth all of those aspects of growth are also powerfully affected by the fat-soluble vitamins. And although there is some controversy over how you would interpret the data, it does seem to the degree that we've measured it that there's a very high prevalence of poorly activated vitamin K-dependent proteins in children when they're in their growth phase. So I would say from the cradle to the grave, it seems like there is within the context of modern civilization, there seems to be this lifelong deficit in this system. Mm, interesting. So you're basically saying it's it's pretty common and there's a number of issues that you think are quite common through society which are affected by this. So how, I don't know, like, could you give us any kind of example? Are there any studies or what kind of evidence is there to show how prevalent this kind of deficiency or, the, or these kind of problems in this system is? Well, I want to take a step back here and say that there are two versions of this story. One is the clean version, and that's what I've been delivering you so far. And that version is the version where you can make a strong case that this is true. There is another version of this story that gets very dirty, and that is that when we try to assess the prevalence of these issues, it becomes very sticky because we're always learning more and more about how to interpret blood markers. And that is 
if we are honest, that has to force us to continually revise how we're interpreting those blood markers. So we could get into the topic of testing vitamin D status, which is wildly controversial, but let's stay on vitamin K for a moment. So one of the ways that we could look at vitamin K status in children is to look at the percentage of osteocalcin that is carboxylated. Osteocalcin is a protein that's made by bone cells and carboxylation is the process whereby vitamin K activates that protein to allow it to bind calcium. Now, through most of the 20th century into the 1970s, no one knew about osteocalcin. And so through that whole time, we just saw vitamin K. We thought it was important to blood clotting and nothing else. Then the new era was over the ensuing decades, the vitamin K research community started developing a body of literature around osteocalcin. And then the phase after the 90s was they started producing reviews that other people could read, and then this became popularized. Up through the end of the 20th century and into the really recent years in the last decade, what emerged out of osteocalcin research was this idea that under carboxylated osteocalcin is a marker of vitamin K deficiency because if vitamin K carboxylates osteocalcin, then if you are adequate in vitamin K, then all of your osteocalcin should be carboxylated. And that seemed totally logical and totally rational. And there are multiple studies. I can't cite the exact figures off the top of my head, but what we can do is put links to the studies in the show notes, if you'd like, for the podcast. Yes. But there were multiple studies showing that in children, the percentage of osteocalcin that is under carboxylated could quite often reach 60 or 70 percent. And so what this looks like with this simple interpretation of osteocalcin is that children have ma massive vitamin K deficiency because two-thirds of their osteocalcin is not being activated by vitamin K. Now, what has emerged more recently in the last decade is that we now know that vitamin K is needed to carboxylate osteocalcin so that it can bind to the extracellular mineralize the matrix of bone. But during the process of bone resorption, that osteocalcin, after it had already been carboxylated, will be decarboxylated and released into the serum. And not only that, but that undercarboxylated osteocalcin that's released into the serum is actually a beneficial hormone that acts on in males, it acts on the testes to increase testosterone production. And in males and females, it acts on adipose tissue and possibly multiple other tissues to increase insulin sensitivity. And it acts on the pancreas to increase insulin output. But what that, that increased insulin output occurs in the context of being very sensitive to the insulin. So overall, it causes a radical increase in metabolic health. And I would say that no one really knows why this system has evolved the way it does, but you could speculate that it might be a way to link bone resorption to the anabolic effects of insulin and testosterone. So you would want bone resorption to be tied to bone growth. And if, bone, if you are in a process of greater bone remodeling, then perhaps the resorption causes 
osteocalcin to be released into the serum and then provide an anabolic stimulus to help rebuild that bone. That's just speculation. But what isn't speculation is that this causes a real challenge to interpreting what does it mean that such a high percentage of osteocalcin is undercarboxylated in children? Does it mean that the children are not getting enough vitamin K? Or does it mean that because those children are engaging in a rapid period of bone growth, that their bones are just producing more of this hormone in order to provide a greater anabolic stimulus, which is exactly what they should need as growing children? Or is it both? And I actually am of the opinion that it's both because of several reasons. One is that whenever you take someone who has a considerable percentage of undercarboxylated osteocalcin in their blood and you give them vitamin K supplements, you increase the carboxylation status. And so that seems to provide some proof of principle that they are operating in some range of inadequate vitamin K. But also, if you look at the fracture rate in children, Growing children actually reach a point during puberty where their fracture rate uh, is equal to elderly people who are starting to have their bones deteriorate. So I believe that probably both of these things are true. And although undercarboxylate osteocalcin is not a clear, clean, straightforward marker of vitamin K adequacy, I do think the data overall suggests that children are their bones are growing faster than the mineralization of those bones can keep up with. And so I think the reason that the fracture risk temporarily increases is because, I mean, imagine it like you're stretching a rubber band. If you are stretching that, you're putting pressure on the system and it can break, right? So you are expanding the bone matrix and you are not at the same rate mineralizing it. That's like stretching out that system too thin. And in that case, you temporarily undergo this position of greater fracture risk until the bones can eventually keep up because eventually you stop growing. And then if you just get a little bit of extra mineral at a time, eventually you can fix the problem that you created during the period of rapid growth. So I will say that my working paradigm is that this system is inadequate but I don't want to give the impression that it's incontrovertible. And I also don't want to give the impression that, just to be clear, it's equally controvertible if someone's going to take the opposite position, right? So this is a reasonable debate. Yeah. Right, right. There's two ways to look at it. And I guess if you were trying to resolve that, if you did a controlled study through the teenage years with families where they were getting more vitamin K, they were getting more of these nutrients from the system versus the other, some kind of study would like that, would it help? resolve like potentially and give it give answers oh well that's another line of evidence that we that we actually do have so there are multiple observational studies that suggest that higher vitamin k2 intakes now just to clarify vitamin k2 is a specific form of vitamin k that is found in animal products and fermented foods as opposed to vitamin k1 which is found in green leafy plant foods and vitamin K2 is more effective at activating the systems that we've been talking about than vitamin K1 is. So if you look at vitamin K2 intakes, observationally, people who are in the highest, depending on the study, tertile or quartile or whatever they looked at, intakes of vitamin K are likely to have better bone mineralization, a lower risk of 
heart disease and blood vessel calcification. And even, we didn't even get into this, but also a lower risk of multiple different types of cancer. And there are cases, to my knowledge, I don't know of a study showing that in children you can reverse that increase in the, in the fracture risk during that period with vitamin K supplementation. But there are some multiple successful vitamin K interventions in elderly where very high doses, possibly pharmacological doses used in Japan, caused a dramatic increase in osteoporosis risk that was more effective than osteoporosis drugs. What would be a pharmacological dose? Oh, so, I mean, if you look at what you're going to get from food, the highest intakes of vitamin K2 tend to be, you're really topping out around 200 micrograms a day. Most people would not be getting that, but you could find that among people who are eating whole foods. In the Japanese trials, they were using 45 milligrams. A microgram is a thousandth of a gram. So you're talking about orders of magnitude higher than what you could get from food. Okay. But no one has tested lower doses of vitamin K. So the, with the osteoporosis trials, it's sort of this question like, was it the first 500 micrograms right, that right. caused that decrease in risk and the rest was just chafe? Or do you actually need 45 milligrams to cause that effect? Yeah, it takes a while to find the minimum effective dose. So I guess I'm guessing uh, vitamin K2 isn't toxic at high doses. Well, in those Japanese trials, there were no reported adverse effects. Anecdotally, I have talked to some people who seem to be hypersensitive to vitamin K and seem to anecdotally have negative experiences from uh, supplementation. And I think there is reason to speculate that it would be preferable to keep vitamin K in closer to the doses that are maxing out what you could get from natural whole foods because there are some biochemical effects that you that you could reasonably construe as negative when you get into really high doses. Okay, great. Thanks. You just mentioned cancer. I guess we didn't really go through the a complete list of issues that you feel would could be associated with this system. Are there others that we haven't mentioned which you would see as like commonly or like high potential of being associated with, with the system and a deficiency? Well, I think when I'm looking at vitamins A, D, and K in a functional network, I think the system where that really stands out is the system of calcium distribution. When you start talking about cancer, it gets a little bit less clear how they interact. So vitamins A and D are involved in the expression of numerous genes that are not coding for vitamin K-dependent proteins. And they have independent effects where vitamin A may do something that vitamin D doesn't do and vice versa, but there are also genes that are regulated cooperatively by vitamin A and D that don't, have, that don't relate to vitamin K. And in addition to that, although the best characterized function of vitamin K is to activate proteins by adding carbon dioxide to them or that carboxylation process we were talking about before, one of the things that for a long time we could speculate about was why is it that that process occurs in one part of the cell and we actually find most of the vitamin K in the nucleus and the mitochondria. And what we're finding out now is that vitamin K also plays a role in energy metabolism. Vitamin K also plays a role in gene expression and so on and so forth. And when you look, when you start thinking about gene expression, then anything that is a failure of the cell to behave in the way that that cell should behave suddenly becomes a candidate risk of a deficit in that system. So for example, autoimmune conditions make a lot of sense to look at 
when you're thinking about vitamins A and D. And I don't know of any studies that have shown that vitamins A and D, when given together to humans, will do anything positive in type 1 diabetes. But I do know of at least one study where they showed that when you take uh, pancreatic stem cells, you can regenerate the insulin-producing cells that are being lost in type 1 diabetes by providing the active signaling compounds that are made from vitamins A and D together in those cells. So does that translate into a human effect? I don't know, but that's one possible candidate risk that we could be looking at. When you're looking at vitamin K, there are probably the most compelling study was one where they looked at liver cancer in women who had who were at very high risk. And I believe it's been a while since I looked at it, but I believe the risk was caused by the existence of viral cirrhosis. That showed that the incidence of cancer in a controlled trial, that vitamin K supplementation virtually obliterated the risk of cancer, like lowered it by over 80%. And, and there are also you know, multiple other cancer-related endpoints that could be related to vitamin K because we have cell studies where we can say, okay, we drop vitamin K in this specific form on the cell. This is what it does. Most of that has not translated into human outcomes. And most of it also has not really, so little is known about the mechanism, right? So what I was telling you about how A, D, and K interact to regulate this calcium distribution system, we have a lot more, a lot more understanding mechanistically of how that system operates. And so I suspect that there are a lot of interactions between nutrients that we could eventually uncover when looking at autoimmune conditions or cancer but we just don't have the mechanistic basis to really understand it at that level yet. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. So it sounds pretty broad spectrum. And thinking about tackling this, if you're in any of those um, spots that we, you were just describing, it might be worth looking at this because it's not exactly something really hard to, to fix or address either. I was just wondering, because um, you were talking about cancer, if you've looked at the work of Dr. Bruce Ames and his triage theory, and if that's something you think could be playing a role there. Yeah, so I'm not exhaustively, but I think that with respect to vitamin K metabolism, Ames's triage theory is pretty well known, and I would suspect, I actually know about it from studying vitamin K, and I, I suspect that if you were to talk to leading vitamin K researchers, probably most would consider it a very valuable tool in understanding vitamin K metabolism. So if you look at triage theory in that sense, the implications of that are, so triage theory, the idea is the body is going to prioritize acute survival needs over investment in long-term health when the supply of nutrients is compromised. In the case of vitamin K, what we see is that if you are marginally inadequate in vitamin K, then your liver seems to get top priority to activate blood clotting factors. And the bones and blood vessels and all these other systems that are dependent on vitamin K are, they sort of lose out. And, and that's sort of the rational decision of the body saying, look, if I get cut and bleed to death, that's much more imminent of a risk than if 20 years down the road or 30 or 40 years down the road, I get arterial plaque or I get a heart attack or a stroke or osteoporosis with this slow degeneration of the bone matrix. So I think that there's pretty good evidence that the body does prioritize vitamin K that way. And I think that 
it's almost become standard in the field to use that as a working framework to try to understand how that prioritization occurs. Great, thank you. I'm always interested how different ideas overlap and where people's work is kind of work, uh, using the same, similar frameworks and so on. So I think in my audience, people are actually using a, a variety of different diets, right? They could be doing whole foods, vegan, uh, vegan, uh, paleo, uh, keto, maybe something a bit more standard. How, it might be hard to answer this question, but how relevant do you think it is to each of those groups, more or less? Like, are some going to be better positioned to not have a deficiency than others? And some, like you were talking about vegan earlier, are going to be potentially more at risk. So one of the issues that comes up here is genetic polymorphisms. And one of the areas in which we are starting to get a lot of research in is in the ability to derive vitamin A from plant foods. So the physiologically essential form of vitamin A, meaning the form that we need in our bodies to fulfill the functions we've been talking about, is retinol, and it only occurs in animal foods, whereas red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables are rich in carotenoids that can act as precursors to retinol. And there, since 2012, we've been accumulating a small body of evidence showing that there are very common genetic polymorphisms that strongly affect the ability to convert carotenoids to retinol. And in addition to the genetic effects, there are also a huge number of dietary and metabolic factors that also affect that conversion. And I can list those if you want me to, but even if you were to optimize the dozen factors that could affect that conversion rate, you may just be stuck with poor genetics in terms of the ability to convert carotenoids to retinol. So my suspicion is that in vegans, one of the determinants of whether someone is going to do well or not do well on that diet is what are their genetics like for the ability to derive vitamin A from plant foods. And because this is so dependent on genetics and metabolic health and other dietary factors, there's no saying that a vegan will become deficient in vitamin A. But I think that people who are going to be vegan have to be conscious of how they're going to respond to that because if they fall into that category of poor derivation of vitamin A from plant foods, then they that would be likely to be a weak spot for them. A vegan also wouldn't be eating fish or traditional sources of vitamin D, but they could compensate for that by getting sunshine. People also can take vitamin D supplements and there are, I think it could be debatable about whether this is the best choice, but there's also UVB irradiated mushrooms that are on the market as a food source of vitamin D. And uh, for vitamin K, I would say that that also would tend to be limiting on a vegan diet, and that's not because you can't get it. In fact, by far and away, the best source of vitamin K2 in terms of quantity is natto, which is a fermented soy food that's popular in Eastern Japan. But the fact of the matter is that when you look at the general population, most people are getting most of their vitamin K2 from egg yolks and cheese. So if you take out egg yolks and cheese and you don't put in natto to compensate for that, you're going to have a huge drop in your vitamin K2 intake. And I think that could be very significant. So in the case of the vegan, it's for vitamin D and K, it's really a matter of properly designing the diet in order to compensate for those changes. With respect to vitamin A, there's also an element of, is your constitution really well matched to this diet? 
if it's not, then you need to either rethink the dietary strategy or you need to supplement with vitamin A. I think if you look at paleo and keto, it kind of depends on what foods are being incorporated. So some people define paleo based on what foods it's restricting. Other people might define paleo more based on the, the theoretical framework that we want to, that much of modern disease is caused by a mismatch between our environment and our evolutionary environment. And people who are thinking it more like that are, are more likely to say, well, how are our ancestors eating? Well, they were eating nose to tail and they were getting all the organ meats when they killed an animal. And I think if someone is doing paleo and is doing that, they're going to be in a much better position than if they are eating what the standard average American is eating or average person in most of modern society elsewhere is eating minus the dairy eggs or you know maybe eggs but the the grains legumes and and dairy then that's just taking those foods out is not at all going to guarantee you good nutritional status but paying attention to the organ meats will most people i think back in the day paleo tended to be equated with low carb nowadays that's there's a greater diversity of approaches toward carbohydrate keto obviously is low carb and it's important to recognize that carbohydrate does play a role in supporting the system. Like I was saying before, it results in greater carbon dioxide production that could be relevant. Carbohydrate also supports greater thyroid status and thyroid hormone helps cooperate to produce vitamin K-dependent proteins just like vitamins A and D do. And also vitamin K, you use it one time and you have to recycle it. And recycling vitamin K is dependent on NADPH, and NADPH is a form of niacin that carries energy from glucose to a variety of other systems. So the glucose is ultimately supplying the energy to recycle vitamin K. And so I think when you look at all of those things, I think there's a gray area there where you want to be careful that you are monitoring the health outcomes on a ketogenic diet because, to be honest, I don't think anyone has really studied how does a ketogenic diet affect the carboxylation of matrix GLA protein or anything like that. So you can speculate that there's a lot of things that you want to be careful of, but ultimately what we need is more research to actually look at those actual outcomes on those diets. Right, right. So it sounds like no matter which situation you are in, you have to be cognizant of this. As you were saying, like people are doing lots of different paleo diets and it's the same for keto as well. Like some people will be eating like primarily cheese and, and dairy and things like that. And then others will be like more focused on the, on the meat and stuff. You know, I think there's a quite a wide variety. And it sounds like basically you have, say, a few principles which can cut across all of these areas and potentially resolve no matter which diet you're following could potentially resolve this system if you keep to those rules and it, it, it's so it's kind of independent of any of these diets. Yeah, to a degree. And I mean that you could even broaden that to other diets, right? So what is the diet that most greatly restricts egg yolks and cheese? It's the I'm trying to be healthy diet. Right, right. Yeah. Right. You don't need to be paleo or keto or vegan to restrict egg yolks and cheese. You just need to trust the system and be health conscious. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's the message that to be heart healthy, you get rid of foods that are high in saturated fat and cholesterol, the hell with nutrients. That's been the, the sort of prevailing approach to health consciousness. So I think that it's, this is an underappreciated system that cuts across all these diets and people really need to pay attention to it. 
Excellent. Thank you. So when I was doing preparation for this, I was looking at one of your presentations that was really good on YouTube, went through all of this area. And in that you established some principles behind optimizing this area, this system. And you've already brought up some of them that are important, uh, like genetics, for instance, that can play a role in this. So it'd be good to just cover a few of these uh, to give people an idea of, of the system and what kind of things, because I think there's some misunderstandings. When it comes to vitamin D, for example, for many years, we've just been thinking, okay, I have low vitamin D compared to what the vitamin uh, D council says, I've got to take a supplement to raise it and now I'm all good. Whereas I think what you're saying is it's, it's quite a bit more complex than that. And that doesn't necessarily help you. Well, that's true. And I mean, that's not only true because of the other interacting factors, but it's also true because 25-OHD, which has been promoted as a specific marker of vitamin D nutritional status, isn't one. It is very true that if someone is low in vitamin D status, their 25-OHD will be low. And if you supplement them with vitamin D or restore nutritional status, it will rise. That is true. And yes, it's useful as a marker of vitamin D nutritional status, but there are also numerous other things that are both good things and bad things that can affect 25-OHD. So for example, calcium deficiency can lower it because you're using more vitamin D at a greater uh, rate. Vitamin A supplementation could potentially lower it because you're increasing utilization of vitamin D to fulfill cooperative functions that they're needed for together. There are genetic differences that just make some people metabolize it to the active form at a higher rate, and that seems to be associated with better health outcomes. So one of the things that I have been advocating, especially recently, to better understand 25-OHD as a marker of vitamin D nutritional status is to look at parathyroid hormone or PTH. And this is a test that you could very easily ask your doctor for. It is not difficult to get, but the reference range for PTH is based on uh, diagnosing parathyroid disorders. And so it's sort of not useful for this. But if you look at the rationale for putting the cutoff of vitamin D adequacy at a certain 25-OHD, it's actually because on a population level, that 25-OHD is associated with maximal suppression of parathyroid hormone. The parathyroid gland is the resident expert within the human body on your individual calcium vitamin D economy. And PTH output increases in direct response to that economy of vitamin D and calcium being inadequate. And I think that if you want to, instead of saying on a population level, this much 25-OHD on average is associated with maximal suppression of parathyroid hormone, we can take the exact same mainstream conventional principle and apply it to the individual by looking at, is that individual's PTH maximally suppressed or not? And in trying, my tentative conclusions about this are that if you look at PTH, uh, you want it to be in the lower half of the reference range. And so that's basically 30 seems to be uh, in picograms per milliliter, 30 seems to be the sweet spot, 30 or below. If someone's at 35, I, I don't know if that's concerning, but when it's 40 or it's 50 or it's 60, I think that is a, a very good corroborating sign that that person's body perceives itself to be inadequate in vitamin D. And I think that can really help us uh, get a more nuanced and sophisticated approach to looking at that. So that's one thing that I would mention. But also, you know, as we've been talking about, 
you add vitamin D to this uh, system and it needs the other cooperating nutrients to fulfill those roles. One of the problem points here is that let's take what is the prevalence of low serum retinol in the population? Well, it's really low, like two or three percent of people have serum retinol below the reference range. And so everyone says, well, people are a lot more likely to get too much vitamin A than not enough. And so they tell everyone to avoid vitamin A. But then people come in and say, let's tenfold increase your vitamin D intake. Well, now all of a sudden you're, you are taking that person, if you're 10xing their vitamin D exposure, you're taking them out of that original population and putting them into a totally different population of 10x vitamin D status. And in that case, what is happening to your vitamin A status? I think there are a lot of reasons to be concerned that all of a sudden vitamin A intake becomes very relevant to most people when you move them into that high dose vitamin D supplementation. Uh, so I think that you know if you're gonna tweak this system, it's really important that you pay attention to the whole system and that you not just take one element and blast it at the system, hoping that that one element is going to turn things around. The most important principle of that is even if you're going to supplement, first of all, have a targeted reason for the supplementation. Be conservative about the dose and titrate it up to higher doses based on how you're responding to it if needed. But also be very careful that the background diet is supplying all those extra nutrients, right? So if you're going to be if you're going to supplement with vitamin D, be conservative about it, but also get your liver once a week, get your daily egg yolks in, get your fermented foods in, get this background supply of nutrients up to par so that if you do perturb the system, the rest of those factors make the system robust and it can handle the changes that you're putting into it. Right, right. So definitely balance versus saturation of one micronutrient. So because you're saying like get a good background of, of foods there is one of the principles behind that is that foods tend to be naturally uh, balanced in these nutrients. If you look at liver, it's got vitamin A and D combined and it comes from a body. So you'd think it wouldn't be completely out of whack with uh, the needs of a body. I actually don't think that's true. So if you take if you take a fish's liver then fish liver tends to be high in vitamin A and D. But that's not true if you take a terrestrial animal's liver. And that's because mammals, we store vitamin D primarily in the blood and not in the liver. And so our metabolism is a little bit different than a fish's metabolism. So if you were using the blood in the animal and you were using the kidneys in the animal, then and you were truly eating the whole animal, that would probably balance out. But it's not necessarily true that you can say, well, my substitute for eating nose to tail is I will eat liver once a week. That's not necessarily doing you any favors with respect to vitamin D. What it is doing is it's making you robust to any problems with your derivation of vitamin A from plant foods. So let's take the person who really is terrible at making that conversion. If they eat one serving of liver once a week, they're meeting the RDA for vitamin A. Now, you can debate what is the optimal vitamin A intake and is it higher than the RDA or not, but if you take that liver out and they, and they aren't good at getting vitamin A from plant foods, what other food besides liver or cod liver oil is going to bring that person up to par? Nothing. So what you're doing by doing that is, is not – the liver isn't going to magically 
make the whole balance of the diet. Even if you were to catalog all the potential polymorphisms that you have in the enzyme that makes that conversion, you'd kind of get stuck nowhere because every time a new study comes out, we identify these new polymorphisms, right? So you really have no idea what your conversion is at all unless you subject yourself to a, to a randomized crossover study where you're undergoing multiple diets and collecting data on it, and no one does that. So just including liver in the diet, just it's sort of you can put that question to rest. You don't really have to care about that conversion if you if you make that one step. When it comes to vitamin D, you need to get regular sun exposure, and that's not the only reason to go out in the sun. But include some fatty fish, include some pastured egg yolks, get outdoors. That, in most cases, in the absence of some constitutional or disease issue, for most people, covering those bases covers vitamin D. Get your egg yolks in, get your fermented foods in, get your leafy greens in. For most people who don't have a specific vitamin K-related problem, just getting the diversity of vitamin K-rich foods in covers the bases. When you say fermented foods, uh, you mentioned natto earlier. Are there other ones you recommend? Um, so honestly, cheese is the, for the average person, cheese is going to be the most potent one, if not on their list. Part of the issue is that it depends on the bacteria. So if you take the natto bacteria and you make homemade fermented vegetables with it instead of fermented soybeans, my understanding is that would be a pretty good source of vitamin K2. Uh, by contrast, if you are eating, say, sauerkraut, you are getting some vitamin K2 from that, and and that's good, but it's nowhere, it's like incomprehensibly less than what you would get from natto. And even if you just compare sauerkraut and cheese together, cheese is is way ahead of sauerkraut. So I think that diversification is really the best strategy here, right? You can, if you want, you can micromanage it and you can look at the table and log your K2 intake every day. But if you just get a sense, I mean, if you want to be practical about it and you don't want to be spending exorbitant amounts of time thinking about it and managing it, then I think what you do is you say, okay, fermented foods in general, but particularly cheese and also egg yolks are convenient sources. So if I just rotate these in my diet on a regular basis and don't think about it too much, then that secures a baseline level of adequacy. Yeah, so variety is a is a big principle here. Yeah, the more you restrict your diet, the more you need to micromanage it. Right. In terms of productivity, I think you do this as well. You you basically do auto orders. So I have, you know, local firearms I subscribe to. You fill out the the stuff you want and it gets auto delivered every every week. So I don't have to think about it. On the other hand, that means that I'm probably not getting the maximum variety because otherwise I'd be getting over-delivered with food if I was trying to uh, maximize the variety. So I don't know if you, in terms of productivity, if, if that's something you deal with, because I think you use Thrive Market, right? I do. Yeah. In terms of you know, variety, do you kind of switch yours up, have a look at your list and just change it each week, or do you leave it on auto? Yeah, When so I, I actually don't auto-subscribe to things like that, although the way that I deal with it is usually pretty close because I, I mostly just have mobile apps where I just tap, 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 tap on the things that I've been ordering recently, and, it, and it's that simple. But uh, a lot of the ways that I deal with variety is to deal with it on a week-to-week -week rotation basis. To take an example, like I find trying to get variety in within a day or from one day to the next is extremely taxing on 
on it not it's not only taxing mentally to try to think about what I'm putting together, but it's also taxing on my ability to not throw food away because getting that variety in would mean that I would have to over order things, right? Like so like I try to get a variety of green leafy vegetables in. But what that means is that on a given week, I'll have a cooked kale will be my cooked vegetable that goes into a big batch of starches that I just, you know, take out of the refrigerator and reheat in two minutes each time I use them. And I'll get like a a box of some type of leafy green that I would eat raw and I'll just eat platefuls of that. But the next week I will switch out the kale for a different green vegetable that I make cooked and I will switch out whatever those leafy raw leafy greens were for a different one. So I get my variety in more on a week to week basis where I'm rotating different types of similar things into my diet rather than within a day or from day to day. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that. I like to make sure the uh, information is is practical. I'll probably have to change mine up based on that. So I wanted to go back to the testing. This is a quants show at the end of the day a lot of the time. When you were talking about uh, the PTH earlier, that was basically a downstream marker of vitamin D kind of like an indirect measure versus a direct measure where you're looking directly at the blood D3, uh, 25-OH-D3. Is that a typical strategy you'd take for this area? If if you were, so afterwards, it'd be interesting to find if, if you think it's actually worth testing in this area, because I, you know, I know in some areas it's like, it's not that useful at times. So first of all, is it useful to start looking at testing in this area if it's a concern of yours? And then second, is a downstream strategy often best versus going for the direct ones similar to the D3 in the other areas? Well, no one uses the direct strategy with vitamin D. If you consume vitamin D, you consume it as vitamin D and measuring vitamin D in your blood is virtually useless as a marker of nutritional status. Everyone is using the indirect strategy of measuring 25-OHD, which is a downstream metabolite of vitamin D. The issue is, I mean, in every case, when you're looking at a biomarker for anything, the questions that you're asking are, is it sensitive and is it specific? And quite often we may think that something is specific. And then when our understanding of it increasingly evolves, we need to revise that. And I think that PTH is a more specific, it's a more specific marker of inadequacy in the calcium vitamin D economy than 25-OHD is. And one of the ways to think about this on an intuitive level is what is the parathyroid gland doing? It is continuously monitoring the vitamin D calcium economy using sensors of receptors that sense the concentration of calcium in the blood. If you have serum calcium dip for even a millisecond, the parathyroid gland will sense it. And on a scale of less than a fraction of a second, it will respond to that and carry out a downstream cascade of events that will start operating within seconds and basically finish operating within minutes to normalize serum calcium. If you take someone who is consistently deficient in vitamin D or calcium, what you wind up with is that person will have a higher level of PTH because that PTH is being chronically activated to compensate for that deficiency. If you're to compare PTH and 25-OHD, I'm not going to argue that PTH is 
100% perfectly specific, but it adds a lot of interpretive power to the 25OHD. And to take just an example of one of the confounding factors, if we look at people from different ancestries, we will see that there seem to be differences in how they metabolize vitamin D. And people of white European ancestry actually seem to be outliers in the amount of 25-OHD that they need circulating in their blood to su maximally suppress parathyroid hormone. Now remember, when we set the benchmark for what is an adequate 25-OHD, that is set on the basis of maximally suppressing PTH. That is the benchmark that is accepted. I'm not advocating a different principle. I'm just advocating individualizing the principle. Now, if you take someone who is African-American or you take someone who has Inuit ancestry, probably if you take someone who has Asian ancestry uh, and you compare that to someone with white European ancestry, what you will see is on average, they will have lower 25 OHD but they will also have higher levels of calcitriol, which is the fully active hormonal form of vitamin D, and they will also have lower levels of PTH. And so with that, and if you trace that further, what you find is that there are genetic polymorphisms that are more prevalent in those populations that trace to different ways of metabolizing vitamin D. And so if you, one of the ways to interpret it, that is that different populations are adapted to different levels of 25-OHD needed to maximally suppress PTH. But one of the problems with that is that that's just on average, right? So if I take the average of white girls and black girls in Oklahoma, then on average, all those things that I just said will be true of those groups. But then when you take the group and you separate them into individuals, the genetics don't, they aren't separated into those two groups perfectly, right? So some of the African-American girls will have the genes that are more prevalent among the white girls and vice versa. And so in order to actually treat people, to actually treat the individual, you can't just define them by their group. So in that case, what better way to do that than to actually look at whether PTH is maximally suppressed in that person? I think all you're doing is taking the conventional standard strategy and saying, well, let's look at, is this actually operating the way that we're saying it should operate in this particular person? Yeah, it's a great reminder that you have to look at this on a personal level for a lot of things. Just as you've talk, spoken, like, talked about all these complexities, it kind of reminds me a little bit of methylation. Um, you know, I'm sure you've looked at methylation a bit, but um, with all the polymorphisms and everything, people react completely different to supplementation and, and when you're trying to tackle that. And it sounds exactly the same with this. So in, in terms of other tests that, that I've come across, one of them is SpectraCell, the micronutrient testing they have. I don't know if you've looked at that and if you thought it's useful. Um, it has uh, vitamin K2 and K1, I believe, if I remember from memory. I do not like SpectraCell. Uh, and uh, <laughs> unless they have radically changed how they do it in the last couple of years, I haven't looked at a recent SpectraCell report, but I, I basically disagree with the entire principle behind the SpectraCell report. And I, also, and I also think that it generates pretty bizarre conclusions as well. Now, I will say that I don't want to sound like I'm singling out SpectraCell. I would say it's generally true of all of the shotgun approaches to practically anything, like even genetic polymorphisms. You can take your 23andMe data and run it through various software apps that will, or web apps that will give you back a report 
that that will give you ridiculously conflicting practical conclusions like you have this polymorphism so take methyl b12 you have that polymorphism so avoid methyl b12 and so i think that's just sort of an inevitable consequence of trying to do too much at once i think it is possible to do many things at once and i think we're eventually heading towards that area it's just that you can't sacrifice the integrity of the methodology in order to get more stuff. And in the case of SpectraCell, and I don't know if they've changed this in recent years, but a couple, at least a couple of years ago when I was looking at SpectraCell reports, what they were doing was taking lymphocyte concentrations of these different nutrients. And one of the problems with that is that there is no practically zero research on that. So take, for example, vitamin D. There are thousands of studies that span tens of thousands of people looking at 25 OHD levels. And there are at least hundreds, if not thousands, of useful studies that are are worth looking at in terms of how does that correlate with disease risk, how does it correlate with metabolic factors, and so on and so forth. And by contrast, uh, we don't have a lot of data on how do white blood cell concentrations of vitamin D correlate with these factors. So although there are huge limitations to interpreting 25-OHD that I was just describing for you, the only reason I even know about those limitations is because there's so much research on it. With leukocyte concentrations of vitamin D, I can't tell you what those limitations are because we don't have a huge body of literature assessing its usefulness. What I can tell you is that there's no particular positive reason to assume that is a useful marker. And I can also tell you that I had a consulting client who was taking vitamin D supplements, had really high 25 OHD, and had really low leukocyte concentrations of vitamin D, and SpectraCell told him to take more vitamin D. By any accepted definition, he should have been, if anything, cutting back on his vitamin D. What does it mean that his leukocyte vitamin D concentrations were low? To be honest, I have no idea. I don't know what it means. But neither does Right. As you're saying, like it could be so all sorts of things like genetic polymorphisms. You know, people are just different that way. Um, all of these things that just aren't uncovered because there's no research. Well, also leukocytes are a part of the immune system, and the immune system uses these things and profoundly affects their metabolism. So, one of the things that we know is that one of the reasons you can have low 25 OHD is because of inflammatory activation. So, even for example, in the recovery to surgery, the immune response that is involved in tissue repair will cause a pretty large drop in 25-OHD acutely in that sense. And probably it's true of chronic inflammation as well. So one of the things you want to ask is, why does a leukocyte decide to concentrate vitamin D? And does it decide to do that sometimes and not others? And does that leukocyte concentration of vitamin D have a lot more to do with what that leukocyte is deciding what to do because of the context of immune signaling in that person and not nutritional status of vitamin D. And that's a question of, we need research studies. But ideally, research studies come before you start practically applying tests rather than after. The ideal time to say, we tested this, now you should go out and do this, is when we have a lot of information about what that means, not so we can 10 or 20 years later hope to get some information about it. Absolutely, thank you for that. Are there any other tests you've come across in this area, either bad or good, ones that you don't think are worthwhile doing or anything good? 
Um, specifically on vitamin D or across the board? Across the board? Yeah, the whole fat soluble. Yeah. Yeah. A few others that stick out. So first of all, uh, for vitamin A status, the most useful measure is serum retinol. And serum retinol doesn't perfectly correlate with vitamin A status, but it will tend to be low if you are running low in vitamin A. And in general, the reference range is pretty good on that. So the reference range, if you just get like a quest a report for serum, so I will warn you that it should be called serum retinol and at least quest diagnostics calls it serum vitamin A, which really annoys me. But, <laughs> but in any case, it's the same test. And uh, the reference range for that is based on the role of vitamin A in supporting night vision. So if you are within the reference range, that should preclude virtually all cases of impaired night vision as a result of vitamin A deficiency. Now, I think there is a, some big question marks over whether we, is that actually the most sensitive marker of adequacy? And I will tell you from my personal experience, I had some pretty severe eye-related signs that indicated to me that I was vitamin A deficient and I you know, made a very intensive effort to improve my vitamin A status over the course of a week. And after I did that, I was you know, still resolving my vitamin A status, but I had my serum retinol tested and it was towards the bottom of the reference range, but it wasn't below it. So I think you probably don't want to be operating at the bottom of the reference range. So would you say... I think one of the baseline rules we've spoken about before on this show is like uh, if you're in the top third for a lot of these standard reference ranges, because the normal population tends to be have a fair amount of chronic illness and so on and non-optimum health. Is, is that a rule you could take for this test? I'm not quite sure about that, but I will say that I would prefer to be in the middle than on the bottom. So I don't want to encourage people who are in the middle to try to get up to the top third, but... I would say if you're towards the bottom, you should definitely try to get towards the middle. If you're at the top 60 or 70%, I'm not going to recommend that you try to get down to the middle, but <laughs> right. but you know what I mean? So it's yeah. it, the data really aren't that clear, but but you at least you want to keep your distance away from the bottom of the reference range in my opinion. I will also say that in rats or uh, I can't remember whether it was rats or mice, but there was a recent paper that came out that showed that obesity compromises tissue vitamin A status. I shouldn't say tissue. Tissues besides the blood. The blood is a tissue. Uh, but it compromises vitamin A status in many tissues without decreasing serum retinol. So there are caveats that we're just starting to learn about with these tests. But in, I would say in general, serum retinol, despite potential limitations, is very useful to have. For vitamin K status, there exists Oh, I want to say one more thing about vitamin A. If you're concerned that you're getting too much vitamin A, there's a good formula to use, and that is to get your fasting serum retinol and your fasting serum retinyl esters tested. And I at least know that uh, Quest Diagnostics actually calls these two tests serum vitamin A and serum vitamin A palmitate. That means retinal palmitate, which is the predominant retinal ester. And this has to be fasting. If in the fasting state, if you add those two values together and your serum retinal esters are greater than 10% of the sum of the two values, then that is an indication that your liver is overloaded with vitamin A and that you either need to cut back or you need to correct some backup in your metabolism. It could, for example, if someone is, has fatty liver disease that will compromise their liver's vitamin A storage and that could play a role in it. 
But if you are lean and healthy with good body composition, most reasonable interpretation of that would be that you're overloading your liver with vitamin A. With vitamin K, I am not happy with any test that's currently available at all. There, I do not think it's useful to look at leukocyte vitamin K concentrations. I don't think it's useful to look at plasma serum or blood cell, red blood cell concentrations. What I would think would be useful would be the carboxylation status of osteocalcin. And I don't remember which lab it is, but last I looked, the only lab that was offering this gave you undercarboxylated osteocalcin without giving you what is the percentage of the total osteocalcin that's carboxylated. And just looking at total undercarboxylated osteocalcin is not useful. On the horizon, there is a company called Immunodiagnostic Systems that two or three years ago told me they were trying to develop a test for desphosphounncarboxylated matrix glop protein, or DCUCMGP, which, put simply, is the inactivated form of MGP. That's the protein that protects soft tissues from calcification and helps direct calcium into bones and teeth. So if that's high, it's a very good marker that you don't have enough vitamin K supply to your blood vessels. They told me two or three years ago that they were hoping to get this test past FDA approval. And I I asked them today if they've, this morning in preparation for this show, I asked them if they've made any progress on that. And they said, they're working on it. <laughs> so, wow. uh, awesome. so I think on the horizon, we can eventually see the inactive form of MGP be a very useful marker of vitamin K status in the blood vessel. And when that comes out, I'm going to be super happy and, and tout it with fanfare all over the place. But right now, there's nothing is available that isn't just like a waste of money, in my opinion. I will say also that there's a company based out of the Netherlands called VitaK. And they offer testing of all of these things to people who form contracts with them. I do not know if they form would, would form those contracts with clinicians who are testing it in patients. I do know that I was talking to someone, a clinician who was doing clinical research and he was taking samples from patients to do a research study, and he just sends them to them. They measure all this stuff and give the data back to him. This is not going to be helpful for, for patients or for you know the average person, but if there are any clinicians listening, I would say they, they may be worth approaching about this to see if, if you can come to an arrangement with them to start collecting some clinical patient data. Awesome. There's some amazing stuff there. I mean, you've obviously uh, really kept up to date with all of this stuff. Um, it's great to hear about the spectrocell. I did the spectrocell about three years ago, I think it was. So it would have been the same test that you looked at. And yeah, it had a few, it had slight K2 deficiency. Uh, there wasn't actually that much that came of it for me. Nothing really interesting. I should, just to add one thing, I had someone who had the same result and they said that because K2 was deficient, they should supplement with vitamin K1. Oh, nice. Because it's a precursor to K2. Right. And all of the evidence indicates that humans tend to be relatively poor converters of K1 to K2. So that's just one more example of how the data is not translated well into practical recommendations in those shotgun tests. Yeah. I would say with tests, because a lot of the tests, the lab tests, they have these recommendations. Um, if you look at organic acids, you know, lots of lots of different tests, they have these kind of recommendations which are spit out through an algorithm based on the marker being low or something. 
I think most people say not to look at those. Just as a kind of general rule across most tests, it's just not very useful because it's not taken in context of what else is going on. Well, right. But I, I mean, there's no reason that that's not doable. And I hope that we will be moving forward into an area where that aspect of those, that testing can be improved. Yeah, it would be awesome if it could uh, eventually be automated. So this has been great. So much uh, great information. I'd love to know what you're up to right now. Is there some current research, some questions you're trying to answer? What What's kind of like top of mind for you right now? Uh, sure. So right now, my top priority is putting together a, a special report that I will be uh, selling once it's out on a very practical guide about how to resolve chronic inflammation using essential fatty acids. And so one of the one of the things that I think has been profoundly misunderstood for most of our at least since the 1990s is how the inflammatory process works and how it's resolved and many of the things that are, have traditionally come out of the outdated 1990s framework like take high dose fish oil to inhibit the inflammatory effects of omega-6 are, or particularly take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to inhibit the inflammatory actions of omega-6 are possibly just downright backwards. And so what I'm trying to do is put together a really practical approach about what is the minimal effective dose for a healthy person of different fatty acids and in um, different disease states, what is that effective dose and what are the factors that could actually be distorting the metabolism that can be fixed and things like that? So that's the, the sort of the longer term project that I'm working on. Some of the other more immediate things coming out are I just recently started my own podcast, The Daily Lipid. So anyone can, can search uh, for that in their favorite podcast app. And I'm upping my social media game. So <laughs> I you finally got back into tweeting. I, I finally got active on Instagram. And most recently, I've joined Snapchat. I'm actually doing some uh, some useful content on Snapchat. So a lot of the things that I hope to eventually put into permanent content, I'm, I'm snapping as I'm thinking about them. So for example, yesterday I, I snapped a video tutorial about how people who have gotten their 23andMe post-FDA debacle can, despite no Alzheimer's report, still hack the system to get their uh, APOE genetics and stuff like that. So eventually that'll become a YouTube video that's part of a blog post, but that could be a month down the road. And this way, you know, follow me on Snapchat and you get these cool little things as the, as I'm thinking about them. So, so that sums up what I'm up to at the moment. I'm also lining up some potential interesting research for the fall academic year. I'm playing with a couple ideas and I, I'm not ready to, to really say for sure what I'm going to be doing, but I, with the right amount of help, I may actually start looking at uh, how vitamin A and genetic polymorphisms and sleep disorders relate in a uh, student population. And if that pans out, that'll be pretty exciting. Thanks. You got to, I'm really interested in the inflammation stuff, actually, because uh, I've actually taken high dose uh, fish oil to resolve some inflammation. But uh, we'll talk about it later because I think it's, uh, it's very specific to me. It's not necessarily everyone who's done that. Maybe you know something about it. There's also, yeah, I mean, just the, there are, is value to the omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil. It's just that the if you are effectively resolving inflammation, it's probably through a very different mechanism than what's been uh, traditionally touted as the mechanism. Right, you're saying the omega-6 versus omega-3 mechanism? I mean, what the omega-3 fatty acids are actually doing there, right? So the, the traditional idea has been that the EPA should inhibit arachidonic acid metabolism. And 
what we're finding out now is that that's counterproductive. And there are other mechanisms where omega-3 fatty acids come into play. But actually understanding why also provides insight into what kind of dose should we use? What should we take it with? What's the best way to optimize the process? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds very interesting. Maybe we can have you back on the show later whenever that comes out because inflammation is a big topic, right? For sure. You know what I'd be really interested in? Is there anything you've changed your mind about in the last few years? Changed my mind about? Um, there, <laughs> there's probably... There's probably a whole uh, bunch of things. I mean, one thing that I've changed my mind about that I think really relates to the stuff we've been talking about here today is 25-OHD status. When I first started looking at vitamin ADK interactions, I kind of focused all my critical analysis into those interactions and took for granted what a lot of the vocal vitamin D community was saying about you want to have 50, 60 nanograms per milliliter, 25-OHD. I've really revised that downward as I've as I've started applying the same critical analysis to that particular issue. Moving outside of that, I was never really an advocate of low-carb diets per se, but I think that I did buy into a lot of the theoretical framework of low-carb approaches, even though I just you know sort of figured, well, I'm lean, so I don't have to worry about that, but et cetera, et cetera. I've, I've sort of uh, being a little bit more critical of the low-carbohydrate approach to a lot of issues and trying to build a better appreciation of carbohydrate recently. So that's an unrelated thing that I've changed my mind about. Excellent. It was interesting to see people going back on on stuff. It's very important to be able to go back on um, decisions and, and change your mind. As you're saying, it's all developing all the time. It's hard to stay stay on one topic and be sure of it. Is there anything that you track in terms of metrics or biomarkers for your body on a routine basis and why? Sure. Well, I try to take the information one at a time because I feel like I could track everything but then I would probably get lost in the information. And I also, last year, I've been recovering from uh, kind of workaholic syndrome where I was not tracking anything because I, because I was just consumed with, with work that I was doing. So I'm trying to gently move into targeting the highly specific things that I know I need to track. And for me, one of the things that I was tracking over the last few months was just my protein intake and my caloric intake. And I wound up losing 30 pounds and a pretty hefty amount of body fat that I'm that I'm pretty happy with over the course of a few months. I've kind of moved on from that, but I still actually track my calories most days just because I'm I'm trying to strategically move out of fat loss and into gentle muscle building without much fat gain. So that's something that I continue to track. One thing that's I mean that's kind of like partly a health thing, partly a vanity thing, but one thing that's much more straight out health related is uh, my iron status. So I am homozygous for the relatively common allele that interferes with the hemochromatosis related pathway. And it's thought that it only causes hemochromatosis when it's paired with the more severe allele. I just have two of the minor ones. Uh, But that puts me in the top 3% of dysfunctional iron absorption in the population. And so theoretically, I shouldn't get diagnosable hemochromatosis. But what I find is that if I do not give blood regularly, my serum ferritin is high-ish, but nowhere near even the middle of the reference range. So maybe it's 150. And a lot of people say it should be lower than that. But the reference range says if it's under like 500, it's fine. Uh, But what I find is that my transferrin saturation starts getting out of the upper end of the reference range and my unbound iron binding capacity get, starts getting out of the bottom of the reference range. And what that means is that 
relative to my capacity to deal with the iron, my iron is being overloaded and that increases the risk of free iron running around that can contribute to oxidative stress in my body. And I actually think that that really has a huge impact on my metabolism. I actually discovered this slowly over the course of the of several years. Before I knew I had these genetics and before I had ever tested my iron, what I noticed was that when I was a guinea pig in my doctoral lab and people would take my blood, I would always feel better. And one of the best responses I ever felt was when I was a guinea pig for a pharmacokinetic study where my lab mate put a catheter in me so she could take 12 blood draws in a single day and then a 13th blood draw the next morning. And I felt awesome. And that was when I started thinking about it. But then it was like a year or two after I got the, the 23 in me and that showed me that I had those alleles and that motivated me to go out and measure my iron status. And then once I got a full iron panel, that's when I really put it all together. It's been so, uh, just with balancing work and life, it's been difficult to maintain a regular schedule of blood donation. So that's my number one health priority right now is just trying to stay on top of donating blood every, every eight weeks. And uh, next time around, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my first double red cell donation. So we'll see how that goes. Cool. I was just, is it legal to do that at home? Because just recently I've been... Uh, at home? Yeah. Just, just, I have no idea. Oh, right, because I don't, I don't know, but like, um, I've been basically forced to get my own blood samples at home just because I'm traveling sometimes and in the UK sometimes when I'm sending stuff to the US because the best the tests I'm doing sometimes are over there. Oh, for testing? Well, yeah, for testing, but you could take more blood out. That's so I was that's why I was wondering if it's a legal repercussion. If it, I honestly have no idea. I mean, I, I know that like if you were a student in a high school, the teacher would have, <laughs> would be legally bound to report that, um, you know, but I, but I, I did for an adult, a consenting adult that knows what they're doing. I, I haven't, I don't know why that would be illegal, but I am not a legal expert. So. Yeah. I guess they've never fought to do a rule about it, <laughs> probably given the number of people. When I was in grad school, so the rules in Connecticut were, it differs state by state, but the rules were in Connecticut where anyone who gets properly trained can can take blood and uh, people would just like practice on themselves <laughs> like uh, just just to get practice so i don't know well so that sounds like you know this iron era sounds like something you're gonna have to monitor yeah for sure I, I mean right now right now i have a sense of how often i need to do it but it's definitely something that after a few times i'm going to monitor and try to get a precise idea of how often i need to donate to bring it down to the level that i want yeah yeah excellent very interesting it's funny, like the number of people I interview on this show who end up with something like this, with this um, very specific thing they found out about themselves that then they are then monitoring routinely. It starts to make me think that maybe everyone in the world has one specific thing just through diversity that's a little bit out of whack. And once they've looked into the numbers for a bit, they discover this one strange thing. It just seems it comes up more than it should. If you were to recommend one experiment someone should try to improve their body, whether it's for health benefits, performance or longevity, uh, with the biggest payoff, what would that be and how should they track it to understand it? Um, you mean in terms of measuring something or you mean in terms of intervening without having any data about it? Well, just taking some kind of action. Yeah, and ideally having some kind of way of knowing that it was actually successful. Or it could be just like a bit, like it could be just something that you say, in your opinion, 98% of people, if they do this, it's going to be beneficial in some way. For the very reason that you just said, I suspect that there isn't one thing that 98% of people can do and have it equally pay off among them because they all have one one particular weak thing to, to work on. 
I would say, to be honest, I feel like if we're talking about the general population, then I think that the biggest payoff would be would be find self-experiment to find the sustainable way to modify your body composition. So a few things that I would toy with would be protein intake and habit formation. And I think you have to kind of look at yourself and your individual psychological traits. I will say that for me, uh, tracking my calories with my fitness pal is one of the most effective things that I ever tracked because I always had a problem where if I didn't eat enough food, I would have insomnia from it. And because of that, I would, if I was, you know, not tracking my calories, I would constantly overshoot in order to preempt any possibility of not falling asleep because I didn't eat enough food. I was always eating a little bit more food than I needed. And I was able to titrate my caloric intake to the sweet spot that allowed me consistent weight loss, but also to optimize my sleep. And had I not been tracking calories, there's no way that I would have found that sweet spot. I don't want to make a blanket recommendation that everyone track calories, but I do think that maybe this isn't true for your audience because everyone is so on top of tra tracking everything. But if I were to go out to the general public, for sure, I would say that finding self-experimenting for you, if you track waist circumference and body weight to get some insight into your body composition and you keep a food log and you know experiment with is there a specific set of very simple habits or actually tracking calories and serving sizes and, and those things that can come together to produce a consistent movement in a positive direction with body composition is where I think the biggest payoff would be because there are so many downstream metabolic dysfunctions from carrying the wrong mix of of fat in the wrong places in your body that even the systems we're talking about today, like normalizing your insulin sensitivity and your thyroid hormone and all that stuff that can come from managing your body composition can make the fat-soluble vitamins work much more effectively than they would otherwise. So that's what I would give. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great takeaway. So this pretty much winds it up. Um, you've mentioned your podcast. Your podcast is great. You started it recently and it's extremely detailed. So um, if you guys listening today uh, enjoyed this talk. Um, there's even more detailed stuff and um, on the podcast, which is the Daily Lipid. Is there any specific other request? And we already already mentioned your Snapchat, and I saw you were on there, and some others. Is that the easiest way to for people to connect with you? Facebook, Twitter. So, if you want to follow consistently everything that I get, I think the best way to do that is to go to my blog, blog.cholesterol-and-health.com. And uh, if you subscribe to by email or to the RSS feed there, you will get all of my long form content that way. So my anything that I write, any of my podcasts and so on and so forth. Definitely, I would say I'd love to have you following my Twitter, Snapchat and Instagram. Uh, but of course, that's kind of a different way of following me because when people follow someone on Snapchat or Twitter, they don't see everything that they put out. They they stream it at a given time, and if something's there, they see it. If it's not there, they don't. Uh, and on Facebook, one thing that I'm trying to do consistently now is to do Facebook Live once a week. When I do Facebook Live, that shows up in 150 to 300,000 people's newsfeed. Wow. If I post something on Facebook, it shows up in like 500 people's news, newsfeed. So 
So you can follow me on, on Facebook, but, but probably if you do that, what you actually will see in your newsfeed is my Facebook Live Q&A sessions. So, so check those out as well. Cool. Thanks so much for what you do, Chris. And it's been a great conversation. Awesome details. Thanks for your time. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much, Damien. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at verquantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.